Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. Oh, I do it in the mirror. Good for you. But I've been doing it since I was nine. That was Dr. Barry Rumack, professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and director emeritus of the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center. And I bet you're wondering, like I'm wondering, what he's been doing in the mirror since he was nine. Well, that and more, including the illustrious Rumack Matthew nomogram, will be our topic for this episode of Talks Now. Thanks for staying with me, and welcome back. To start off, I should let you know that the day that Dr. Rumack came for this interview, he came in a bow tie, and he said that uh, he has to tie that in a mirror because he's been doing that since he was nine. And uh, so that's what he's been doing. And for this interview, we were really uh, pleased to be able to talk to him. And so for the first part of this interview, we'll kind of talk about early life and how he got into toxicology and some of the changes he's been seeing with toxicology. And then we'll move into his research on N-acetylcysteine and acetaminophen, or acetaminophen, as he was quick to point out. I understand you weren't initially going to go into medical school. I did not want to go to medical school, but my wife my now wife, for 52 and a half years. Um, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Wanted me to go to medical school because she wanted to go to medical school. Both of her parents were doctors. So she kept pushing me. And then in my senior year of college, I'd gotten a National Science Foundation fellowship, which was worth $3,600 a year, which in 1963, believe me, you could live well on that. So I had no interest. I was doing research, and she met me one night after one of my experiments, which took about 16 hours. It were these really long experiments, and took me to dinner and had two folders with her. One was for the University of Chicago and one Wisconsin, and she'd filled out the applications, written the essays, and attached a check for the application fee. And all I had to do was sign them, and so I did. And then when I got accepted, I said, look, I can't afford to go to medical school. My father was an artist. And uh, she said, well, don't worry about it. I've arranged for you to have a job teaching microbiology at the University of Wisconsin. And I said, well, okay. And she said, well, you know, the first two years of medical school are not that different than the first two years of uh, graduate school. So why don't you give it a try? So I agreed, and she then said, well, you can't go up there alone. We need to get married. So I accepted. We got married. And it's probably one of the best, most important changes in my life ever. So there you go. We have Dr. Rumack's wife, also Dr. Rumack, to thank for convincing him to go into medicine. That's got to be one of the cutest uh, wedding stories I've, I've ever heard. But the question is, how did we get uh, the illustrious Dr. Rumack into toxicology? Well, it's probably a familiar story to those of us in academia. So when I was ready to join the faculty, I was given a laboratory at the uh, Kennedy Center. And my assumption was I was going to continue to do metabolic research and so forth. I had a bunch of ideas that I wanted to work on. But Henry Kemp, who was chair of pediatrics at that time, he was the one who coined the term battered child and published all of the original data on that, welcomed me to the faculty and said, but you have to have a job on the faculty. So you have to pick out a job. And he said, there's two possibilities for you. The first is the library committee. And the second is this little poison center 
that we have. And um, I said, well, I'd rather take the library. <laughs> and uh, and he said, uh, well, actually, no, I think you have a lot of chemistry and metabolic background. I think it would be best if you would take the poison center. And I said, well, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I, I, I think that's what you need to do. And, uh, That's thought, such a great young faculty story. I'm giving you a choice. Right. You, you've chosen the wrong one. It wasn't right. really a choice. You'll be doing this. It sounds like a lot of work. Well, it is. You're young faculty. Uh, yes. Right. So I, uh, yeah. So I, I, anyway, my first time over there, I, I, I went and there were two um, clerk typists who had been in the Poison Center since 1956. So this was in, in 1973. They answered poison calls, but during at night, the interns and residents in pediatrics answered the poison calls and used a book called Dreisbach. It was a little black book that we carried in our pocket, and they would page, uh, because we had paging systems there at that time, they would page poison control, poison control, and then you would call this number, and they'd hook you up to whoever called. And were they generally um, other uh, healthcare providers, or are they generally the general public? Majority? It was mostly the general public. Um, poison centers, up until a little later, really were considered pediatric issues. You know, the, the first one was in 1953 in Chicago. It was by a pharmacist and the American Academy of Pediatrics, which was in Chicago. It became a pediatric thing. So almost anybody who was running a poison center there was a pediatrician. So that's why it fell to me. So I went over there and talked to them about it and asked them, you know, what do you do and all that? And they showed me. And they were keeping records on these little cards. And the data was on five-by-eight cards that the National Clearinghouse provided. About every two months or so, they'd send 100 cards out, which would have product and ingredients and various other things on it and treatments. And uh, I thought the treatments were atrocious when I read through them. It was things like if you have an alkali agent, Drano, Clinitest tablets, which at that time were, were the way you tested for sugar in a diabetic's urine, were terribly corrosive agents. The treatment was to administer vinegar or juice of a lemon. And the concept was that it would uh, neutralize the base. I later published some data showing that that was wrong. But at the time, I remember going through these antidote charts that they had, which were things like um, if it's a heroin overdose, you give potassium permanganate. If it's uh, iodine, you give starch. Um, there, were, there were all of these sorts of things, none of which made any sense to me. Well, and it seems like the history of toxicology is either treatments that are based on a very abstract biological, physiologic reasoning that might make sense when you diagram something out, but but doesn't necessarily translate to the human being, or sort of anecdotal evidence of someone at a hospital somewhere that tried something, and in their eyes, it seemed to work, so then it gets published, and that seemed to be the basis. A case report type thing. And you're exactly right. And looking at all these antidotes and things, and I'm thinking, this is absurd. And I, of course, had no real training in toxicology at that point point. Um, well, what was the real training in toxicology? Well, that, that was when I went to Edinburgh later on, because uh, Henry Kemp and Dunno O'Brien, who were here on pediatrics, said, I came to them and I said, look, I know pharmacology, I know chemistry, I know all these things, and but a lot of this stuff seems absurd to me. And I would like to be actually 
capable of knowing something about toxicology. And I looked for some training. The best place in the world at that point was Henry Matthew at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. He, along with uh, Clemenson and, and Mashevsky in Denmark, had pioneered the concept of not giving analeptics. Yeah, the doxapram and things like that. Supportive care. Right. And there was a lot of controversy at that time whether or not they were right. But looking at what he had written and looking at various things, I thought this would be a good place to train. And Dun O'Brien, who was here, had actually gone to medical school at, in Edinburgh. So he made some calls. And the next thing I knew, we spent six months in Edinburgh. Uh, we being you and my wife. wife and my two children. Yes, the the university paid for us all to go over there, and uh, and put us up for that time, and I started working in the Royal Infirmary, and at that time the big problems were barbiturates. There were thirty six male and thirty six female beds on the poison center wards because it was really a, a poisons unit is what it was called, and most of them would be filled with barbiturate patients with bird respirators next to the bed, these little green boxes. And under Henry's care, they would just simply breathe for them until until they'd wake up. We didn't try to give them caffeine or cocaine or strychnine or anything like that. No, no. Henry was totally against it. He, he had trained as a cardiologist, and he was actually a very good pharmacologist, although he would never accept that as a term. Um, and he also wouldn't accept the term of toxicologist. He, he felt like he was a physician. Because he felt that everyone should be, a, in a way, a pharmacologist, he, so it's an improper term? Yes. Or? No, he, he felt, I think, that, that, that you treat the patient. Look at what the problem is with the patient and make a diagnosis and provide appropriate treatment and don't hurt them. You know, so, Sounds basic, yeah. Help yeah, I the know. patients, was, don't hurt the patient. Right, it was... Uh, I think it's but, written somewhere. But it really until that time, in the very late 60s and early 70s, almost all over the world, there were treatments. I mean, they were heavy-duty things. Uh, I remember um, when I was at NIH, I, I um, moonlighted a couple of times at some hospitals in the Baltimore area. And uh, I remember walking being told to come see a patient in one of the rooms, there weren't emergency physicians at that point. So you could be a pediatrician and be an emergency physician and get well paid to try to remove your medical school debts. And so e even then, emergency physicians made more than pediatricians? Well, I got $20 an hour, in which in, uh, in 1969 and 1970, that was good money. I was retiring all sorts of debts and things by, by moonlighting. Yeah, yeah. But I remember... Being told you got to walk, you go into this room. This this is a poison patient. And it's okay, you know. So I walk into the room, and as I'm walking in, the nurse said, "We've given him 500 milligrams of caffeine, sodium benzoate in each arm already, but uh, he hasn't woken up, so we're going to give him another 500 in each arm." And I. What did I know at that point? This is 1969. This is before I did any. You just keep going till he vomits. Uh, until they seize, basically. Yeah. So they, I mean, the, the concept was if they're lying there in coma, do something about it. Okay. And I, I mean, I'll never forget those sorts of interactions. But at that time, I had no idea. You really have to question things. That was what I was questioning about all these antidote charts. And at that time, every emergency room. I'll use that term because that's what most of them were called at that point. 
was required by uh, Joint Commission on Hospital to have an antidote chart posted prominently on the wall and to have an antidote cabinet. And in the cabinet, you had to have, and it specified all of these things, including caffeine, doxapram, and uh, uh, starch, and potassium permanganate, and all of these different things that you had to have. Well, and at that time, it seemed like a lot of therapies were often initiated by either very junior trained medical personnel or nursing personnel who happened to be there already. And so having a, a chart where it was for A, give B was the, not effective, but was the solution. Absolutely. And I mean, as I said before, pediatric interns took poison call at night and weekends. Yeah. And, you know, they would call me and you'd open up the Dreisbach book and you'd read them whatever was in it. And that was what you knew. That was sort of all there was. And so I hope that gives you a good impression of what toxicology used to be, really an antidote chart on the wall. And uh, the history of toxicology is really about moving forward and getting away from the ubiquitous antidote chart and actually thinking about what these antidotes are doing inside people, inside their body. Dr. Rumack definitely had some insights and a good example of a change in our thinking. But, you know, going back to antidotes and some of those old things. So uh, I was on the advisory panel of the Consumer Product Safety Commission in the early 70s, just after it was formed. And I brought up uh, wanting to change the antidote labels on consumer products and things like Clinitest and so forth, Drano and whatever. And I brought it up to the group and I gave them a list of all the antidotes that I wanted to get rid of and not have and so forth. And uh, the group said, well, you know, these are tried and true and tested and for a long time and all that. So the next meeting I came to, I brought some Clinitest tablets and I brought a little bottle of vinegar. could actually travel with some fluids on an airplane at that point. And uh, Bob Goslin, who was the lead author on on the big blue book that we used to use, and Jay Arena were also on the uh, panel, and and Jay was one of the pioneers in toxicology. They were both absolutely wedded to the concept of this antidote. So I asked Jay... Which is level D, level D data, essentially. Try to prove means level D. Right. Well, it just sort of grew up over time, you know. So I gave a test tube that I brought with me to Jay, and I had him stand with holding it over the uh, a wastebasket, and I said, "I'm going to put some vinegar in here, and I'd like I'd like you to tell me what you think." And I just poured in uh, not very much, a few tablespoons of vinegar. Of course, it started reacting like crazy with the Clinitest tablets, and of course, it's very exothermic. Yes. Okay. And so after about five seconds, he just dropped the test tube into the the burning hot test tube. Right. Very hot test. And he turned to me and he said, "Let's get rid of that antidote list." That antidote from that label. Because that was happening inside patients' exactly. uh, stomachs and GI tract. But it isn't just antidotes that have changed for the better. Those of us that have been practicing for a while know that a number of other interventions and techniques have gone the way of the dodo. You know, it's taken us a long time to get rid of lavage, to get rid of Ipecac, to get rid of cathartics, to get rid of all these things that we did for a long time. And I think it's getting much more scientific and calculating and looking at the metabolism of things that is going to allow us to succeed as toxicologists in the future. And actually, you, you said that, and I, I had a picture that I kind of pulled up. Do you recognize this at all, this picture that oh, I yeah. have here? Okay. I have a whole so, series of pictures with that. 
that's a picture of me with with the 40 French tube and the uh, funnel on it. And what you did was you put the patient in the left side head down, put the tube in them, and then you you had a pitcher and you poured that into the funnel and held it up over your head until it went in and then you dumped it out and so forth. And you'd put perhaps a gallon through somebody. And it really was something that everybody thought worked until later on in the 90s when we put markers in and figured out that we really were not getting much out. And that was done on a group of fellows. <laughs> back when protections, back when ACGME was not they, nearly they as were They were volunteers. Quote, unquote. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed uh, Dr. Rumack's ruminations on what it was like to be a toxicologist during the mid-20th century. I know that many of you are listening to this hoping to hear about the illustrious Rumack Matthew nomogram, and I promise you that that's Coming up next, I want to remind listeners that Talks Now is made possible by support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. That's the AACT. Thanks for listening. Up next, Dr. Rumack talks Tylenol. Well, while I was in Edinburgh, there were also a few of these acetaminophen uh, cases, which, by the way, is the correct way to pronounce that. Acetaminophen. The, the Brits converted you. Well, well, no, acetaminophen, because it, it's an amino acid. So that's how... Acetaminophen is pronounced. Actually, they call it paracetamol, but but when I was there, they were calling it acetaminophen. It was sort of interesting to see these cases. Well, uh, Henry Kemp and others had uh, knew the editor of Pediatrics, and they were interested in getting some articles about poisons. So they had asked me to write an article on petroleum distillates and uh, a couple of other articles. And then I got a letter saying, would you please write an article about this acetaminophen because we hear that it's causing a lot of problems in Britain and it's being sold here. We're not seeing any problems, but we just wonder what you thought. So I sat down and wrote an article and gave it to Henry and Henry worked on it with me and I sent it back to them. And they wrote back and said, um, you describe the kinetics of acetaminophen, but uh, could you do uh, like a graphic so that we could have... Make it pretty. Make it pretty. Make it something that we can understand because the rest of us don't know how to calculate all these half-lives and things that I had originally in the article. So even back then, people were saying, oh, I like toxicology and poisons. I'm just not smart enough, which always seems to be an excuse <laughs> to not try to understand it. I don't know if they said that, but they didn't like kinetics. That was for sure, because it, I guess it was math. Anyway... So uh, every Friday, when you were uh, at the Royal Infirmary, uh, the Poisons Unit, you went out to the pub on Friday evenings about 4.30 and uh, lifted a few pints. And, um, <laughs> and while I was there... They got lighter with time. They did. And, and while I was there one Friday, I said, I explained to Henry what the issue was. And so we drew out on a napkin a diagram. And we decided, well, it needs to be logarithmic on the left for the level and then time on the bottom and all of that. And we sort of sketched it out. And then my assignment was on uh, a Monday morning to take a piece of semi-log paper and plot out all of our patients that we had. And uh, Laurie Prescott had published, I think, roughly 30 cases in maybe a few years before that. And I started collecting acetaminophen cases uh, while I was there. And we decided to plot them. So I think we had about 65 patients. So I plotted them out in the semi-log pot. And then Henry and I took a ruler 
and sort of drew a line best fit. between the best yeah. fit line. Yeah, we, there, we didn't have personal computers or calculators or any of that stuff. And this was just to get the PK data. This wasn't a treatment line. This was a metabolism line. Well, right. And it, what, but what it was, we were, what I did is I put plus marks on there for the patients who had an, an ALT or an AST of greater than 1,000 and a minus mark for those that had ALT or AST lower than that. And how'd you pick 1,000? Um, a thousand was, uh, seemed like a good number. <laughs> uh, and, and Laurie Prescott was also there. He wasn't in the poison center. He was in the pharmacology, toxicology area. And we, we talked with him and we sort of agreed that a thousand would be a reasonable number that, uh, that above that you could really call that hepatotoxicity. It was 25 times the upper limit of normal for their SGOT or SGPT, which is now ALT and AST. But um, anyway, so we, we drew that and then we just took a ruler and went between the pluses and the minuses and drew the line. And we said, well, okay, so we ought to be treating those above and don't have to treat those below. And But treatment at that time was a little dicey because there had been a series of articles by Mitchell and colleagues, a classic bunch of articles. I mean, really well done research which had suggested that uh, adding sulfhydryl groups to replace glutathione might be helpful. So Lori started using cysteamine. Uh, and that was because they, they, there was a theory that Napke was a toxic product. Well, yeah, I, he had worked out, uh, Jerry Mitchell and his group, Potter, Jallo, the rest of that group, who were at NIH, had worked that out pretty well. They knew that there was a, a highly electrophilic substance, and they eventually determined that it was napki. And they knew from their experiments, which are beautiful experiments, that they were consuming glutathione. And they had measured, by the way, mercapturic acid in the urine of some of these. So they, they pretty well had it all together. So then the question was, what could be given to try to treat that? So cysteamine was available. Cysteamine was a radioprotective agent, which was used by the U.S. Army and the British military in the atomic bomb test. So they did one experiment in uh, the mid-60s where they treated about 20,000 troops with cysteamine, okay? Then those troops were sent out to observe the atomic bomb. They weren't really exposed to the radiation. They were so sick from the cysteamine that they decided this could not possibly be a therapeutic agent, but it was still there. And the other agents that were looked at were BAL and a couple of others. And Lori actually started doing cysteamine and had some success with that. When I got back to the U.S., we were really interested in trying to find something that would work because we had the theoretical basis. And there were not many toxins that we had such a wonderful theoretical basis. So Elliot Paperno, who was at McNeil Laboratories at the time, set up a model in mice to be able to replicate the acetaminophen and tested about 20 different sulfhydryl agents, D-penicillamine, BAL, cysteamine, methionine, and also N-acetylcysteine. And if you look at his original publications, there's dramatic difference between the acetylcysteine and all of the other agents. The Brits, however, and I separate them by saying British, 
those that were not in Scotland, so uh, Roy Williams and others in London, decided that methionine was the right therapy. Even though the data showed that if you kept increasing the dose of methionine, eventually you got more toxicity from it so that it was not a very good agent. But they, they went with that. Laurie Prescott went with acetylcysteine, and we went with acetylcysteine. And we started the national protocol because we needed to... I didn't think we were going to have enough cases in a single center to really tell whether this was going to be of any value. So we we went to the FDA with a request to be able to use mucomist, uh, acetylcysteine, in a national trial. And the deal was that any center that would call uh, or any physician who would call, as long as they would agree to be part of the protocol and, and live with it, then they could use it. And that we would have a telephone answering center, part of the poison center, really, to deal with it. Well, so it wasn't yet an FDA-approved treatment for any other medical problem. It wasn't M- muc- No, mucomist was a mucolytic agent yeah. used in okay. cystic fibrosis. As a pediatrician, I'd seen it okay. used for that. So in theory, they didn't necessarily have to call if they wanted to use it off-label, right? Well, um, but they I, think, I think theoretically a physician can use any drug they want at their own risk, you know, for whatever they feel like. But since this was going to be a funded grant and so forth, the decision was made to go forward. So the initial protocol was going to be a controlled trial. And being a scientist, you want to do it in a controlled fashion. However, uh, Jan Kochweser, who was at Harvard, was a pharmacologist at Harvard, wrote an editorial in the New England Journal saying basically that using uh, controls to treat acetaminophen when acetylcysteine theoretically was so much superior would be inappropriate. So the FDA then declined to allow us to have a controlled trial, which was very disappointing to me. I mean, it turned out okay. But at that time, I was very disappointed because I thought my science was going to be very poor. Yeah, man, um, you yeah. want us beautiful differences. And luckily, the, the, the outcomes were so dramatic that uh, I guess the controls became less of an issue. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And uh, so we, we then had to calculate out the dosing of the acetylcysteine. And back to the pub. What? Back to the pub. Back yeah. to the pub. <laughs> I wish. No, by that time, I was back in the U.S., so not many good pubs around here. But at any rate, um, so what we did is we used some of the data from Mitchell in looking at the um, number of micromoles of glutathione that was in the liver, and they had been able to calculate that if you depleted 70% of it, you started seeing toxicity. Now, I think you make napki with the first molecule, but you just don't see it because it's taken care of. Anyway, we extrapolated that and we came up with a 60-hour protocol at a lower dose than what was eventually used in the in the oral protocol. But they came back and they said, number one, you have to drop the treatment line from 200 to 150 because we want a 25% safety number. Number two, you have to treat for three days. And number three, you have to give 140 milligram loading dose and then 70 milligram per kilogram doses for the rest of the, for the other 17 doses. And uh, I felt like, okay, you know, if that's what it takes to get this thing on the road, then let's go. And so September 1976, we launched the study. And 
eventually we, on that particular study, we collected over 11,000 cases. At the time, however, most hospitals couldn't do an acetaminophen level. I was going to ask about that because even when you were in Edinburgh, it seems like the levels that you were plotting, were those levels that came back a day or two later or those levels that actually were available real time? Uh, those those levels were done in a lab uh, that was not the hospital lab, and so it took a while to come back. But you just took them by history. And then the, the thought was, eventually, when we started treatment, well, if they tell us that they took the dose, acetylcysteine is pretty non-toxic. Let's just give it, and then we'll see later. There were about 2,500 cases that were actually treated appropriately uh, out of our number, and 517 of them, when we got the acetaminophen levels back, were well below the line. So they became safety controls. So even though I had wanted controls and couldn't have them, we were able to sort of fake some controls in there by looking at those patients that were lower. So those were safety controls, not not true control, untreated. Right. Control. They still received the treatment intervention, but they were, didn't necessarily. They were sort of healthy, healthy volunteers in a right. way. So they, they really basically showed us the safety of it. Well, that was a fascinating look into the history of acetaminophen poisoning or acetaminophen, as well as the studies on NAC. And I guess the need to uh, sometimes do a study with, without a control group, much as the scientist in us might cry. We were lucky enough to uh, tease Dr. Romack's brain with a few questions on sort of modern treatment of acetaminophen poisoning and personalized NAC protocols. The other thing that I think we've found, I published a long time ago an article about misconceptions with acetaminophen, has been patients who come in and say that they took uh, a dose yesterday and now they've got an uh, an ALT of uh, 20,000. And we know that it's 72 to 96 hours to get to the peak level. And I think understanding that and just making sure that you know where the patients really are and what the course of events was is important. Half-lives are also useful in simply knowing what the degree of hepatic damage is, although the ALT is a pretty good measure of that. But looking at the half-life is interesting to me because even in some of the most incredibly high cases with massive ingestions of acetaminophen, you still see a half-life, which means the numbers are going down, that they, they are, are metabolizing. But, but the half-life does tend to get longer in such severe overdoses, right? A- absolutely, so guess, absolutely. So I guess, yeah. But it's not instantaneous. So yeah. if you look at the first dose that somebody takes of acetaminophen, their half-life is two hours. And if they take gradually more or they take a large overdose, then as the acetaminophen gets in and produces napki and binds and so forth and so on, it is going to damage the liver. And the more damage you get, the longer your half-life is going to be. And we've certainly looked at the heights of not only the ALTs, which don't correlate that well with outcomes, and they don't even correlate that well with levels. There, there's not a linear relationship there. One of the reasons why they, you, mean, you don't see the ALT in like the King's College criteria in terms of liver transplant. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with that. And you generally see low bilirubin at the beginning, and then the bilirubin gradually goes up. So if you come in with somebody with a very high bilirubin at the beginning and an ALT, you ought to be looking for other things besides just acetaminophen. But I think... 
the other piece that we've been looking at is why people fail on the 20.25 or 21 hour protocol, whatever your favorite number is to use for that. And some of that is because they have such a high level and so forth that the dose of acetaminophen, which was really intended for a about a 15 gram overdose in a 70 kilogram human, there may not be enough acetylcysteine in there to provide sufficient treatment. And I think patient-tailored therapy is really the way to go. So when you get to the third bag and uh, you're, you're still measuring acetaminophen, if the level is high, you might want to increase your dose, but at least you want to continue that bag and continue that treatment. And, to, and I think it's valid to, to continue it until the acetaminophen level is at least less than 10. And I think that that's safest. Uh, otherwise, I think there will be breakthroughs. I think patients will get sick again uh, or will not have adequate treatment. Any thoughts about second bolus in terms of massive ingestion? You know, there's lots of people out there that are doing I mean, I, I, I've seen people who say, I'm, I'm going to give the same dose of acetylcysteine all the through. I'm going to give another bolus. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. I think... As far as I'm concerned, as long as you're continuing to give the, the dose of acetylcysteine that for the length of, t- for the duration of the acetaminophen that's in the body and consider the intensity. So if you have a level of 600, it's unlikely that the standard dosing is going to work. Okay. You're going to be way over it. And Nick Bateman and I published that in clinical toxicology with and it's it's labeled speculation, and it is because I have no I have no data to show you that this relationship is is exact. But realistically, if you look at the paper published by Mark Urima, which was we gave him all of our U.S. data, and he combined that with the Canadian data to compare it. And what was interesting with that one is, if you look in the first uh, oh twelve to uh, or fourteen hours or so. The IV protocol was a little superior to the oral protocol. But if you look at the late cases, the, the ones who, who were, were coming in much later, the oral protocol was superior to the IV protocol. Now, we're not suggesting to anybody that you should go back to oral acetylcysteine. Do you think it was duration? Yes, it's duration and intensity. Because if you look at the amount of acetylcysteine per kilogram, that you gave with the oral therapy, it was at least three times higher than the IV. And I think that, that again, dose, the dose of acetaminophen is related to the duration and intensity of the acetylcysteine. And if you just think about that, I'm not sure there's any exact way to, to calculate it, although we, we gave you some calculations in that article, but it's somewhat of, of speculative, but it's yeah. at least a guide. No, well, and I think what you're talking about, too, in terms of levels of 600 and things like that, I feel like there's almost three groups of patients. There's almost a group that takes some, but really not not a toxic level. Their, their AST and ALT might go up a little bit, but not a lot. They're fine if they don't get treated. And realistically, given that the vast majority of ingestions don't end up resulting in severe toxicity and death in general across all ingestions, that's a huge portion of, of people. And then there are people that do take enough 
to, to be serious about it, to develop liver injury, and, and, and they do need treatment, but a standard protocol or a protocol that is similar to that, some of those people might actually do better with it or reasonably okay with an abbreviated protocol. Some of them might need a little bit longer. And then you get people who come in where the level is so high that they develop CNS changes and acidosis and other things really uh, that that are beyond the pale of just the typical napki liver injury later on. And those people, I think that's when people start to think about higher doses and keeping it going, even when the level is undetectable, but the AST and ALT are still so dramatically high. And with those people, shortening the treatment protocol doesn't get them out of the ICU or the hospital anytime sooner. I feel like oftentimes people roll their eyes sometimes with acetaminophen a little bit when they're they're used to seeing non-toxic cases and they don't realize the danger. But... I think you're exactly exactly right. I mean, that, that I think dividing them that way in your mind and then following along with them to see, you know, what are they doing clinically, and where where do you need to go with them is is exactly the right thing to do. And it's job security for a toxicologist <laughs> to say patients. Well, well, that was an exciting tour of tox history and some future. We're going to close with one of my favorite stories from this interview, a story of pig liver and family and miracles. But before that, though, I wanted to thank Dr. Rumack for his generous use of his time and sharing. Those of you who enjoy the show or have questions or comments can check us out at our website, TalksNow.org, or our Twitter feed, at TalksNow. I want to thank AACT for their support. I'm Matt Zuckerman from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Ben Eisman, who was here even before Tom Starzl, did a whole series of cases in which he had patients in liver failure in which they would hook up a pig liver and they would run the patients through the pig liver for, uh, I don't know, two to four hours. And these patients would wake up. They would have been in complete acute liver failure, you know, total coma and all that. They would completely wake up. Um, the pig must have felt terrible. Well, the, the pig was not there. Only his liver or her liver was there. So they would run it through and the patient would wake up and then they disconnect the pig liver and the patient would go back down. So he found that you couldn't run a second pig liver on these patients because they, they reacted badly to it. So, right. So he would then use a sheep liver as a second run. And they did, I, I don't know how total number of patients they did, but they did quite a few patients. And what Ben finally decided was that this is not going to be successful, that the only value it has is to wake these people up and let them say goodbye to their family. So they'd gather the family around, hook them up to a pig liver. They'd be awake and alive for uh you know, two to four hours, some period of time, then they disconnected and that was it. So that program got abandoned. But at the same time, Tom Starzl was developing human liver transplants. And that was done here. He was the one who started it here and then he moved to Pittsburgh. But those, that cha- was a game changer, I think, in that whole, that whole area. Talks Now is produced by Matt Zuckerman with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W. Or via our Facebook page or tweet us at TalksNow. TalksNow.